And it was nothing but petroleum. It I was mean, pure it, oil. It was crude oil. You can put your finger in it and it drips off. And the adjacent pool of water has these little pendant looking things sticking up out of it with little black tops on them. And they look almost like fungal, like uh, things sticking up. And Lee didn't believe me. And I had yeah. to call him back and he was annoyed. And I was like, you have to see this. It's super strange. That's Sarah Asha Burgess and Dr. Lee Floria from the Indiana Geological Survey describing their remarkable discovery of large petroleum seeps in the caves of Kentucky. In part two of our conversation, Sarah and Lee share what they've discovered in Kentucky during their weekend warrior caving endeavors and give us their take on the future of cave hydrology research and opportunities for the next generation of cave scientists. Welcome to Aquapod, where guests share water monitoring stories from the field. Hi, everyone. I'm Helen Taylor with In-Situ. And I'm Adam Hobson, In-Situ's Application Development Manager for Groundwater. This is part two of our terrific interview with Dr. Lee Floria and Sarah Asha Burgess from the Indiana Geological and Water Survey. That's right. In part one, Lee and Sarah talked about Lee's research in the glacier caves on top of Mount Rainier and some of the surprising discoveries they've made working on a funded project to monitor groundwater on the Mitchell Plateau in Indiana, including using sulfur to track the movement of meteoric water and its relationship to global carbon flux and climate modeling. Now, we're going to continue the conversation and hear about their remarkable work in the caves of Kentucky. Okay, Sarah, we we know about your work with hydrology, but please explain to us how you got wrapped up into this caving work. Yeah, it was really quite circumstantial. So I had started uh, doing caving work when I did my bachelor's at the University of Akron. uh, And I was doing research in caves there. But I really missed that. And when I started doing the Mitchell Plateau hydrology, I, I really missed that sort of active component in my days and in my research. And so I knew that Lee was a big time caver and both the the stuff he's done in Kentucky and Indiana and Rainier. And that was part of why I wanted to go work with him. So I said, Hey, do you have anything going on? And he said, sure, come down to Kentucky. Um, and when I was there, I was going to do some stuff with him in a different cave on sulfur mountain. Uh, (laughs) But it ended up being that our friend, Chris Bauer was just really excited and said, no, 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 I've got stuff over here that no one is doing. And I need you to come help me. And it had nothing to do with sulfur at the time. And I just wanted to go caving. So he took me and he trained me on how to do vertical work and not kill myself using, you know, single rope technique frog systems uh, to cross over from one rope to another 200 feet in the air so that I could descend a vertical shaft and start mapping miles of cave with him. Uh, Along the way, we got to the bottom about where the exploration had stopped six years ago. And the reason that they had stopped was they found a little mud slot where they could slip down and keep going and they were in passage, but they didn't think that they had enough oxygen to do it because the air just had a horrible smell to it. And it smelled like, like that kind of fecal or rotten egg smell. And they said, no, we're done. And they left the cave and no one went back for six years. And as sort of keying back, the location of this is on the flank of that anticline. So, you know, you kind of start putting the pictures together in your head and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, this might be a place that we should start looking for stuff. And then you all were in there and actually found it, which was really cool. Right. So we slipped down to the stream again and said, this time we'll do it for real. And we looked and there was oil floating on the surface of the stream. 
And, you know, we, we said, okay, that's strange. And went up and mapped about a hundred feet and encountered a 15 foot black oozing sulfur seep with white filamentous bacteria swirling in a cloud of like dark ooze in the bottom of the stream bed. And it was like nothing any of us had seen. And we were very, very excited and left and, and Lee heard all about it. I actually wasn't on that original discovery trip, but the folks who did came and they told us about it. And we were like, oh no, we have to go see that. Um, and that kind of took us into the cave in this phase of exploration. All right. And that's been, that specific instance has been roughly the past year. Uh, and about a year ago, last fall is when those petroleum seeps were discovered. And it's interesting. And, and Sarah, you, these are actual petroleum seeps. Like the stuff in, in um, Blue Springs in Indiana, you have the dark residue, which is probably like bitumen and some of the associated products. But here in this cave in Kentucky, it's actual free product and you can see it. And I mean, the, your story about like your footprints just always amazes me. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, we were both there obviously, but we were walking through and we were planning on putting some, some dye bugs actually in the cave. Chris and I had gone through about a month before and it was the first time people had ever been in that part of the cave. And we went through and mapped the stream up to the northern extent. And then Lee and I went in about a month later to put charcoal packets in because we had just dumped a pound of dye on the surface to wash in and see if a different cave was connected. And all along our way, we were like, what's that? And there are these two little pits that were filled with black goo. And we looked at them and I said, oh my goodness, those are my footprints. And there's, you know, I, Lee and Chris are both six foot whatever and have bigger feet and my feet are tiny little sarah-sized eight inch holes in the ground so it was very distinctively my foot and just filled with black goo um and it was nothing but petroleum it I was mean, pure it, oil it was it, crude oil it, yeah it looks just like you would pour out of a barrel into it you could put your finger in it and it's drips off and and then an adjacent pool this is this is just a bit of a sidebar it's really cool the adjacent pool of water not of oil the adjacent pool of water has these little pendant looking things sticking up out of it with little black tops on them and they look almost like fungal like uh, things sticking up and lee didn't believe me and i had yeah. to call him back and he was annoyed and i was like you have to see this it's super strange and he was like oh my goodness i'm already all the way over here and he crawls back over and he's like what is that? And I poked it and it just bloomed into oh oil gosh. in the puddle. It was quite, quite so they were like Upward droplets of oil that would drip upward through the pool to the surface and then spread like, out. Totally oh, upside wow. down teardrops. So you're monitoring down there? What do you... Uh... This, is, this is stuff that we're doing that's not our day job. And so because of that, it's not part of these funded networks that we have to be able to do, uh, you know, like these research monitoring things, long-term studies. But what we did have is idle equipment from other projects that we could put into the cave just to see if we could get some baselines and see what's happening there. So a um, couple things that we have done, Sarah mentioned dye bugs because we can put dye in a sinkhole and, and then charcoal packets in the cave in the spring and see if the dye moves from one place to the other to see if it's connected when we can't fit ourselves. And that's important here because I'm sure Sarah will tell you there's significant potential for this to be much bigger than it is now. Um, and, and not just bigger lengthwise, but 
depth too, because this is again on an anticline. So you get a lot of potential there that you don't in nearby locations. Um, we also had tried a, a radon detector to see if we could look at ventilation and how air is moving through the cave and using radon as a proxy for that. And the data are interesting, but that's, you know, short term, we're looking at different types of deployments. But to, to get more specifically to these, these songs, we had the Rainier songs just sitting idle uh, since retrieval. And, you know, that's fine. The battery stays good and they're just sitting there in a box waiting to go do something else. And, and I mean, we were sitting around talking. It's like, well, we could launch them and then just put them down in a cave. So we took one and there's a spring that we think is the spring that connects this cave to the surface. And we put in one of the, the aqua trolls there and then deep, deep, deep down in the cave in the stream that had the, uh, the petroleum seeps, we put another one of those sons. And then we also put the, the barrow troll sort of at the top of one of those drops, which allows us to do the, the uh, corrections uh, since in the cave you have such a major change in water level, we really can't trust any venting. Uh, and not just that, if you put a, a desiccant on the top of the vent tube, it will hydrate rapidly because you're in a hundred percent humidity environment inside of a cave. So typically we just want to cap that off and then put a, you know, a barrow troll correction device so that we don't have to worry about replacing those desiccants every week or two. And, and then, so we have that, but that also gives us a way to look at variable pressure and temperature in the cave, which relates to ventilation and air movement changes in the cave. And this cave moves a lot of air uh, because you have lower entrances and higher entrances. And you have this chimney effect that's cycling the air through. So if we can link that data with radon concentration data, that gives us an idea of the movement of air from places of radon production, which petroleum seeps should be reasonably high in that. To the, in, to the surface, which will be very low in concentration. And so that's really kind of, we're, we're again, at the very beginning stages of this. We just deployed those things two weeks ago. Well, and part of it too is the same idea as the work Lee was doing on Mount Rainier, where the site is relatively inaccessible and it's really difficult to go in and do the kind of every two week sampling that we're doing on the Mitchell Plateau. It just doesn't work. So being able to put the continuous monitoring songs there is necessary in order to have any kind of idea of what's going on. It also is a safety thing because we don't have a good idea of how the stream responds to flood pulses. And sometimes we do, but it's really by accident. It's quite scary when it happens. Um, there was last year, it was actually the first trip in there when mm -hmm. they found the, the petroleum seeps. It started flooding and they had to extract themselves almost impassably from a small, uh, a little canyon where the water was dumping down on their heads and they were on rope. So you can't just like hold your head out of the water. You basically have to hold your breath while you climb or you drown. And it's, it's quite scary. And to think to be in the stream itself when that's happening could be really dangerous. And so being able to put the song there and have it safely record the, the stage of water as you have flood pulses go to and from the surface helps us understand where it is and isn't safe for us to be. How deep is this cave? What a question. So when I, when I started getting involved with the project, um, I asked similar questions. How long is this cave and how deep is this cave? And I didn't really get answers. And then I finally just said, well, why don't you just give me the notes? 
And they did to their credit. And I typed all the data in, which no one had done in 20 years. Well, right. 12, years. 12 years. Right. Um, and it at present is 322 feet deep, which is impressive, but it's not as impressive as what the potential of the cave has to be. So Lee mentioned that it's along an anticline and uh, to the north of where our cave is, is another cave. And it's small, but it's about 100 feet deep. And when you rappel in, you realize that you have hit a fault line because there's an eight foot fault scarp where on one side you're standing on the Hartzell, line, or Hartzell sandstone. And on the other side, there's just a drop and then it's a limestone crawl through. Um, and that's where the rock, the mountain itself has actually torn and shifted and thrown one side up into the air and one side has dropped down. Um, and that has created, in addition to just the, this kind of angled limestone thickening from the anticline, a really dramatic increase in depth potential for the cave. So if we were able to connect that cave and we just did, when we mentioned the, the charcoal packet, what we did was we dumped dye into that cave to see if we could detect it in the stream from Spelungers. And if we are able to make that connection and connect to the, to the spring on the surface, the cave has the potential to be around 510 feet deep. And that would make it over 100 feet deeper than the deepest cave in the state of Kentucky, Mammoth Cave. Uh, so that's really exciting. And part of the reason that this is all possible links back to this weird petroleum stuff going on and this sort of idea of polygenetic, where you have a mix of hypogene and epigenetic stereogenesis. Um, but also, it's not just that, because you have the mountain is actually torn in half. And uh, on the northern end, there's clearly a vertical displacement. But within the cave, I started to notice there are walls that are polished and they're polished with scratch marks where the sides of the mountain and the rocks themselves have actually clawed each other apart and polished it like a pane of glass. Yeah. And those are called slick sides and they're amazing. But in the middle of the cave, they're horizontal. It's a transverse fault. Whereas at the Northern edge, it's a vertical fault. And so what we're seeing is actually like some sort of scissoring motion where the whole mountain has shifted. Right. And mm -hmm. the things we don't know is, how old is that? Like, you know, the cave is obviously a younger phenomena than the rock and the mountains around it. Um, but you know, the origin and age of that anticlinal structure and the faults associated with it is a bit unclear. It's not in the mountain building areas of the Appalachians. We're further to the West. So this is one of the larger amplitude anticline features West of sort of the main Appalachians like Pine Mountain. Uh, in eastern Kentucky. So uh, it makes it a bit of a unique environment, but you know, the forces that created that structure and those faults are a bit unclear. Well, hmm. and where people might say, what, why is that a critical thing? It really is because it's why perhaps, but also likely why you have these planes of weakness that you can have these deeper fluids rising up through mm -hmm. and the sort of it all links back to how the cave formed and it's really at the intersection of geologic structure um energy geology and hydrology well it seems like these caves have so much to tell us is this sort of research common and widespread yes 
Yes, to a degree. And what I give sort of the caveat there to the yes, because uh, it is a fairly small, tight-knit community of, of um, scientists who oftentimes come with a caving background in some form too, and uh, that have been looking at this in increasing quantity in the past 20 years or so. Um, so in terms of like the Mitchell Plateau uh, sites that we mentioned and the observation network that we have. Um, there are some others out there that have been doing this for a while. You know, I mentioned my own research in Kentucky, Kentucky but those were shorter term one-offs. But um, University of Florida, John Martin, has been looking at the Santa Fe Rise and Sinks in Olino State Park for nigh on to 20 years and has been looking at that as a big research uh, um, network of sites understanding the hydrology of the upper Florida aquifer. Um, Matt Covington out of the University of Arkansas is looking at networks, the sites at the Savoy watershed near Fayetteville uh, and trying to understand how those link together uh, and what carbon processes are happening there. And out at the Conza Prairie in Kansas in the Flint Hills, they have done similar kinds of work in an area that isn't ordinarily considered karst, but does have interbedded limestone and shale with a very similar sort of water chemistry that results from those processes and trying to understand that kind of an end member in a prairie type environment where you have um, uh, interbedded limestone and shale as opposed to thick limestones like we have here in Kentucky. So those are just three other examples. Uh, of those kinds of studies, but there are many others out there in Texas, elsewhere in Kentucky, uh, and really truly across the United States. But there are reasonably small number of scientists that have been working on this. Lee, how did you get into this work? Uh, well, um, so I I grew up in this area, and you know some of the passion that comes through talking about it is because you know family farm is just up the road from where we're at here in Kentucky. And, um, you know, I've been a caver before I was a scientist, uh, which is not always the case, but often was the case that uh, in my generation that you went caving and you were doing something else and you got really hooked into it and really passionate about it. And for me, I started in physics and math and I decided I liked geology better at some point along the way and decided that if I was going to crawl around in caves every weekend, I might as well study them for a career too. And so that's how I got looped into this and really just, you know, started going caving as much as I possibly could. And then more slowly, more incrementally uh, doing science associated with it. Sarah, what about you? How did you get into this line of work? Well, my story is a little different than Lee's. Um, so I grew up in northern, northeastern Ohio where there aren't really caves and it's all knobby, loamy, dirty glacier hills. Um, you don't even really have bedrock. So when I did my bachelor's at the University of Akron, I got kind of a summer job helping out at the Center for Environmental Studies. And in order to keep my job, I had to do some undergraduate research. Um, and I talked to my advisor at the time about the sort of work that I was interested in. And really for me, my career began in biology. So I said, I'm really interested in these sort of biological connections to minerals. And I really like the idea of, of hydrology and, and contaminant studies. And he said, 
hmm, I don't really have any of that, but maybe you'd be interested in what I have going on in West Virginia. And so my first research that I did in caves was on studying the aerosol deposition of manganese oxide minerals as they collected and dropped out of the air in Scott Hollow Cave. Um, and it, it was really quite incredible. And I met wonderful people. And for me, I really remember I only went caving for that research that I did because we built an installation. And I had to go back. We had some um, we had some data loggers that measured the stage of the stream, and I had to go and maintain those. And I would take friends with me who were actually graduate students of my advisor at the time, who were all cavers. And I remember saying to one of them, like, "Man, I really hope I'm okay at this. I I I've just I never really." I don't know if I'm good enough to be doing this kind of work. And he looked at me and he said, Sarah, do you not realize that you're a caver? And I said, what? And he was like, you've been doing this every month for the past year. You're a caver. You do 14 hour trips in caves and do science. You're the best kind of caver. And for me, that's really when I realized like that was the moment I want to do this for the rest of my life. And then I finished up that degree. I finished up that project and I bumped into Lee, you know, went to the party and he, <laughs> he, uh, he told me that I, he was doing some cool cave work and that I could be involved with it. That's fantastic. What a great story. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see that your experience in cave studies has been different from Lee's earlier experience? People from sort of Lee's generation of science have gone from being, you know, the kids who explored the caves and became the big shots and really effective scientists. And now they kind of have led the next generation of scientists in cave science, but they did it from standing at the top of the cave science instead of, you know, well, we all just kind of explored caves in our free time and then became scientists. Now those people are already there and they're in the universities and they're ready to help out people like me who are coming through as undergraduates. And in some ways that really has shifted the culture and the people who are coming into the caving communities. And it, it's cool to see, but it, because of that, I'm sorry, I won't ramble about this for too long, but it's also a big shift in diversity and diversity demographics because in a lot of caves and cave science is located in rural communities. And that goes back to the socioeconomic factors that influence how communities form water access, availability, um, structural integrity of building a city. Uh, and so a lot of the people, kind of what Lee was talking about in his experience of getting involved into caving and cave science in those early days were primarily white men who were going to go into the caves. And that's shaped by where they were coming from and all those cultural social factors. But that is really shifting in, in the present. And that is largely because there are a lot of people who were that, who now stand in positions at universities and otherwise, and are opening the doors for people to come into cave science from different avenues. Like myself, I'm a young mixed race woman, and I probably would have never broken into it if I had come into cave science 20 years ago. That, I, that's yeah, I, that's a good assessment of things. We have come a long way. Um, there's a lot left to do for sure. But, you know, I grew up in 
the whitest of white rule of America in, in Southeast Kentucky. And um, now at a university, one of the larger Big Ten universities, I have a very diverse culture there of people who want to learn more. And, and I think the opportunities for enhancing STEM education uh, across diverse groups and, and cultures really is, is somewhere that the geoscientist needs to go more boldly. Um, and, and a place where I, I try to make some impact. Um, and, you know, it, I think we're seeing some difference there, you know, in STEM and certainly in caving too, um, that, you know, whereas you know, several decades ago, you know, the adventurous caver woman that was also surveying and doing science was not, not as common. And those that are there from that generation are astounding women. And some of my, the people that I look up to highly, and it's good to know that there is a, another group coming through who will be there themselves. That is fascinating insight and really neat to hear. Before we wrap up, I wonder if you could just summarize for us the importance of the monitoring data you and others are collecting. Um, let me see if I can answer that through another site that's done research recently in Kentucky, and that is the Kentucky Geological Survey and Collaborators up in the Royal Springs watershed, which feeds the municipal water supply for Georgetown, Kentucky, which is a suburb of Lexington. And that's, that is their municipal water supply. And so understanding how the urbanization of the greater Lexington area and the, inc- the loss of horse park land that used to surround that entire community and the growth of Georgetown itself, how that influences the water availability and the water quality through time is important. And yes, you can, and they do, go out and do you know, uh, sampling to ensure that the water coming out of their treatment plants good to drink, right? They have to. Uh, but understanding the source is really important too. And as you pave over a landscape and you reduce the the farmlands, you increase runoff and you change the hydro uh, period of an aquifer such that you get flashier storm pulses coming through. And that really changes how you might um, model your extraction and treatment policies with regards to a water treatment plant that used to just pull water out of a spring and, and go through a treatment process. Whereas now they have uh, contaminants of emerging concern to worry about. They have flashier storm pulses to worry about uh, and a number of other things that they may not have had to worry about 20, 30 years ago. Well, and I think that the way that I would frame that is that, you know, 25% of the world is limestone. It's karst. And that's a lot of people who live on cursed terrains. And the one thing that all those cursed terrains have in common is that they're extremely different environments. The way that they respond to floods is very different. The, the land use is very different. Sometimes it's rural, sometimes it's urban. The way that, that the land is being developed and what people want to do in those areas is very different. And being able to understand, and more importantly, I think, having the tools to understand where we need to understand it, what is happening with the water, how the landscape is developing, how the carbonate is moving, how carbon is being transported into our global oceans through that 25% of the land that, you know, if you ask Lee and I, is some of the coolest to study in the whole world. 
it's critical for the people who live there, right? It's just a small fraction of what people who might not live on cars deal with. But for the people who live on cars, it's all they have. They can't just like pick up their city and move it. And as we were talking about earlier in the Midwest, a lot of communities developed along karst areas because of the spring availability and the access to water. Yeah. So they don't have other choices. Well, and, and, you know, let's just take the Edwards aquifer of Texas. Uh, not only do you have a carbonate aquifer system, the Edwards aquifer with caves and springs, those springs are very, very large. And those springs were the focal points for the community communities of San Marcos and Austin and San Antonio which are some of the fastest growing cities in the United States. And so trying to make sure to, to balance what we're trying to do as these cities grow quickly with how we manage those water resources, which includes the monitoring and tracing thereof, is exceptionally important. And what's really amazing about, the, about that work in Karst is that it, the water doesn't behave like it does in normal, normal non-Karst landscapes right so the classic groundwater model is a sponge you have water it moves through conduits and it comes out but it's it's mostly diffuse flow and in karst it's conduit flow and that lee had kind of talked about that earlier but it really changes the way that floods respond and the way that water interacts with the rock and the way that the water is able or often unable to deal with contaminants on its own and it really frames the way that we as communities and societies living with karst have to interact and in order to be able to do those interactions properly we have to be able to make informed choices and that's what monitoring helps us do dr lee floria and sarah asha burgess thank you so much for your time and your knowledge and your fabulous stories this was just wonderful to hear what you guys are working on in your uh, workday week and in your free time. And um, we hope that you'll stay in touch with us and let us know how these projects progress. Isn't this great, Adam? This is, this is absolutely fantastic. I really want to thank you guys for your time on this. This is just amazing research that you're doing and your enthusiasm shows through. And it's great to see that we've got such great scientists out there doing some pretty cutting edge work in a very unique environment. So thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It very much the time that we've been able to spend here with you this afternoon and yeah it's been really great to be here thank you all so much for giving us the chance to talk about we while we love talking about the very most and thank you all for listening this is aquapod brought to you by in situ please subscribe to aquapod wherever you listen to podcasts and check us out at in situ.com that's in hyphen situ.com you can also find us on linkedin facebook and twitter This episode was produced by Helen Taylor, Adam Hobson, and Lauren Ryan, with a big assist from Josiah Homeland and Versa Studio in beautiful Colorado. We look forward to bringing you more water monitoring stories from the field, and until then, take care out there.